Welcome to Best Served Cold, a Bore Millennials podcast, where we drink wine and talk about crime. Presented to you by Tama J and Laura Lees. Welcome to Best Served Cold. And we're live. Welcome back to the goddamn podcast. We are back. We took a little break to show respect and solidarity with everything that's happening in the world at the moment with the Black Lives Matter movement. We didn't think it was cool or appropriate or sensitive to do an episode last week. Yeah, just not the right time. Yeah, I think we needed to just let the voices of, you know, yeah, it, it, not it's much, great with it, words. We feel it's much more important for what's going on right now and the voices that are speaking out against the in the, the inaction and the disc- discrimination against um, people of colour was more important to be highlighted. And this is why you're the wordsmith in the relationship because yeah. you just worded that much better than... But that's essentially <laughs> what it is, is we just yeah. feel like, you know, our media as a platform can take a break and take a, take a step yeah. back and let other people... Um, not that we're like a huge fucking podcast or anything yeah more so we just wanted to show our respects and our support yeah and our solidarity with the people of color and the black lives movement but we are back we have our original if you can tell the difference we have our original microphones we We got them all working again i might sound uh slightly more um slightly less warm i think we'll sound and slightly more sexy i was gonna say groovy that was close um but before we sort of get into yes, ma'am. Um, discussions and stuff, why every time, <laughs> every single time she, she started attacking the sofa, and it, it's like what the fuck? It's like they know. I swear to God, you fucking naughty little shit. Um, uh, so housekeeping aside from the microphone. Um, so we have our microphones back. Um, second thing is we will be moving forward each week. We'll be doing a mini-sode where Tom and I will be discussing uh, two different stories of either deaths in custody of Indigenous Australians or uh, people of colour or stories of police brutality. Um, so these little mini-episodes are going to be a bit different from these ones because we're not trying to make it about entertaining people or being funny or it's more so like a mini episode where we're literally gonna present the facts of a case because I find in my personal experience especially in Australia they are topics that are so lightly covered in the media Um, for instance the story I'm going to be discussing in this week's mini episode only occurred in 2017 and I can't recall ever hearing about it in the news yeah, so. exactly, and that's kind of the the importance of this this whole mini series um, going forward. These mini series will just kind of be not only us educating ourselves in what's going on in not only Australia but America and all around the world, but <coughs> hopefully um, informing others and educating others of of what's going on because it, it's like what you said, it's something that's not very highlighted very often or discussed. Um, outside yeah. of these communities that it's happening to. Yeah, and obviously, so we, Tamara and I are still learning mm-hmm. and educating ourselves. So after this week's um, mini-sode, which I'm thinking will probably launch on a Wednesday because that's kind of the halfway point between normal episodes, 
If you have a listen and you have any feedback or anything you think we can do better, please feel free to send it our way because as I said, we're still learning, still educating ourselves. We just want to do our part as small as that may be with our little platform we have i think the biggest thing that we've we've taken from this well not this experience but this everything that's going on is how uninformed not only like not just us specifically but i think australia and people who don't regard themselves as or who aren't uh, who don't identify as aboriginal torres strait islander um, Australians, how ignorant we are of what's sort of yeah. going on. It's it's really. It's not really something that's taught in schools either. N- no, which is, very yeah. barely. Like I mean, it, I remember distinctively watching the rabbit proof fence at school, and that's yeah, kind that of was like, like my only. Yeah, that's like education. the only thing you really are ever told. And <clears throat> I mean, I think it's a, a, in part it's to do with the population disparity between. Um, Aboriginal Australians and the rest of Australia is that their culture and just everything about them is kind of squandered compared to everything else we we learn about. Yeah, and it's, it's just unfortunate. Not something that's it's sadly really not something that's taught. No, and I've talked is, about it before, yeah. but my with with my um, family culture dating back, going back to Maori culture and New Zealand, it's something that's celebrated and really highly regarded in, in New Zealand and it's just one of the many things that I think New Zealand is kind of uh, a bit more Kicking advanced and progressive in. yeah and yeah. I mean it's not perfect there's definitely a lot of issues that they're still yeah. fighting for and it's something that um, you know I'm also learning about as well with, with my culture um, in New Zealand but something I'm also very proud of and very passionate about um, so I can only imagine just the the levels of of you know importance and just the importance that the aboriginal community is is feeling and bringing Mm. these topics up and discussing them and and not only them but in in america the people of color in america african-americans it's a huge fucking thing yeah it's um it's a topic I don't, you, yeah, is, I don't even really know where to start yeah, with discussing it's just it, to be so honest. And there's not really any, like, good way to, like, segue out of it. I suppose just if you are interested in learning more and, um, and wanting to be a part of, you know, the right side of the, of, of, um, or just the better part of the, of, um, history, then we have... An episode coming out, like Laura said. Feel free to listen to it. Um, give, give us your, us thoughts. your thoughts. We'll have links to places uh, you can donate. In the yeah, show donations notes. you can. Yep. Uh, charities you can donate to, and I, we encourage you to, to search and read up as much as you can about um, this topic. It's really mm. something that everyone should know about. And you know, if you can't find it here, well, we we will be highlighting other podcasts and mediums, I believe. Yeah, that's another can... thing we're doing on our Instagram. We're looking to highlight a different... Um, I think to start with, probably we'll just stick with our space, which is other podcasts, mm-hmm. um, and then eventually maybe moving into films and books yeah. and just basically highlighting... Um, black and indigenous creators within the podcast space. Yeah, I feel like the podcast space is one thing that's not really so much of a family thing. Yeah, because it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to make 
there's not really like a community yeah. space for podcasts. I kind of wish there was, and yeah. I feel that like that would be cool. That'd be, that'd be nice. And I patent think, pending. Yeah, like whatever we can do to help make that happen, and you know, RuPaul is listening intensely for any business ideas. <laughs> That doesn't involve fracking. Like, girl. Oh, look, don't even get me. RuPaul has been... Controversial. So quiet over the past two weeks, and it's showing. Yeah. At least she's not doing a geogun and oh. saying that oh. coronavirus is a man Coronavirus virus. vaccine isn't real. Oh, yeah. my God. Don't even And just... that her body will fight the virus anyway, <laughs> so it doesn't matter if she catches it. I don't it. even know where to start yeah. with that. Let's don't even... Let's not. Let's I need just time segue. to process that. That only happened today. Let's just segue into the show. Um, we, um, did anything interesting happen to you this week that you would like to... Um, not really. I mean, just I, I've been spending a lot of time locked away in my cave writing, writing um, music. music, which has You'll been see. very productive and my very good. People. I feel... Probably the best I've felt together. mentally, which is fantastic. I feel yeah. very good. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> just singing Madonna quietly over the top of you. Sorry. Yes, thank you. Well, that's a huge inspiration, Lady Madonna. There you go. The queen. What about you? That's what have you queen. been up to? Not much. Like, just trying to adjust to going back to work. After, like, nearly two months of not leaving the house and then suddenly just going back to, like, Five days a week, commuting morning and night. It was a bit of a culture shock. But it has been nice to have a bit of a routine back. I will say that. It has been quite nice. To get some exercise and stuff. I'm so excited for the gyms to reopen. Holy shit. Saturday. Saturday. Saturday, 9 a.m. They are open from. The day after this podcast comes out. Yep. It's happening, people. (laughs) It's happening. I took up embroidery. Oh, yeah, you have. Well, I mean, I say took up. Basically, I drew some shit on the material <laughs> and started. It looks very good, though. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with myself. Happy. I'm very um, impressed. No formal training. I will be officially taking custom orders via my Instagram, but not really because I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, one day. But yeah, um, I don't really have anything else to to talk about. So Sick. shall All we? Right. Yeah, I'll just jump into um, who I my think topic. probably is actually. Despite the fact that we've talked about some pretty well-known killers, I think this one is probably... Everyone's going to know this name. Yeah, one of the most notorious names. He's up there with, with you know, people like Adolf Hitler. Um, just one of the most notorious drug lord kingpins and mass murderers and psychopaths. Um, Colombian drug lord... Pablo Escobar is dun, dun, who I've been talking about this week. <laughs> it's it's one it's a topic that's um, somewhat sensitive to some people. It's still it's it's fairly recent when you think about it, nineteen eighties, yeah. and it's had just such a long lasting effect on not only Colombia but you know South America and drug other drug trade in general. Yeah, well, I mean, not even just drug trade, but like it, it's had an, a huge impact on. The states and um, South American countries, um, it just, it's very, very sad, the events that transpired from Pablo Escobar's empire. And And I honestly know 
really not much about him. So this will be interesting yeah, for me as well. This, the, my, I have a fascination with this purely from the show Narcos, which just was a fantastic show. One of my, one of the first shows I ever watched on Netflix, actually. Um, I just, it was, it's one of those things where you, it's like, you know, documentaries and things like that, where it has a, it's a real life occurrence and something that actually mm-hmm. happened. And it's just something about that, that it's real and it actually happened. That just is so bizarre and you feel you need to learn about it. Yeah. You know, and Narcos pretty much had most of the, what actually happened in real life with Pablo Escobar was in Narcos, obviously with some creative liberties and things that uh, might have been, you know, exploited a bit or not really so somewhat like neglected. But I'll be going into most of what Pablo Escobar was known for, and then and and, and then a bit about his early life. So I think I'll just start with that. Actually, his early life. <clears throat> So Pablo Escobar was born December first, nineteen forty nine, in Rio Negro, Rio Negro, in uh, Colombia. This is forty five minutes from Medellin, which was the main city in the area. His father Abel was a hardworking cattle farmer, and his mother Hermilda was a school teacher. So together they had seven children, and they lived as a middle class family um, in a community fueled by the marijuana and cocaine trade. So while everyone was not necessarily involved with the the drug trade in um, Rio Nero, well, infiltrates the entire economy once it yeah, and becomes the exactly yeah, and everyone was not 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 that it's not that everyone was involved, but they were all very protective of the people who were, mm. um, mostly due to the violence in part on the enforcement of the narcotics trade uh, that was just around them at all times, so. It was a very, very violent time in Colombia. Uh, so before starting school, uh, the family moved to um, Envengado, a small village just outside of Medellin, so Humilda could establish an elementary school. Abel sold the farm and he took up a job as a neighborhood watchman. Humilda soon became very popular and respected member of the community, and at school, Pablo was becoming a very quick, able and smart intelligent intelligent student he was a chubby kid uh which came to his love from his love uh, of fast foods but he was also very talented in ball sports specifically soccer many of his teachers were also involved in social causes which actually yeah, played a huge inspiration and in, in influence in, in uh, to him to want to get involved with class equality causes and uh, by the time he was in his early teens, he was attending street rallies and uh, taking part in activities like throwing rocks at police cars. Pablo came into a youth culture movement, which was known as Nadismo, which encouraged, encouraged, encouraged young people to disrespect the established order, disobey their parents, and write their own rules. So part of, the, part of this counterculture movement involved experimenting with drugs, uh, which now, which led the now thirteen-year-old Pablo down a road of addiction with marijuana that he would that would never leave him. He was thirteen when he started experimenting. Shit. Yeah. So, and that's it. Just sort of, it's a testament to him, his character, really, because this this is something that plays into his entire life. Mm. Not only just the the marijuana addiction, but him as a, as like a, 
a socialist. Yeah, just a uh, an activist, a social yeah. activist, really. Um, so now sixteen, uh, Pablo was a short five nine, relatively round man. And a few months before turning seventeen, he drops out of school because he was bored with the mundane routine, and he was eager to make his own way in school. So soon after leaving, he starts up a small bicycle bicycle repair shop. Um, what he would do is he would walk around the streets of Medellin and. Um, if you say he'd walk around and break the bicycles. No. Oh, I so was he would say that's the smartest business move no, in the world. No, he, he he would he would he would get the right idea though, in his later investments. But he would just walk around the streets and and his local tip, and find bicycle parts that he could then use uh, to repair bikes on the cheap. Right. I thought I really thought you were going to say he'd walk around at night and like break the bicycles and then <laughs> people would have to bring them, which is just the s- most ingenious business idea I've ever heard. Really. Yeah. I mean, kind of. Yeah. You got a point. Um, so with the money he made in his business, he bought himself a Labretta motorcycle. Supposedly, Pablo's step into crime started with him stealing a head, stealing headstones from the local cemetery, sandblasting the names off, and then reselling the headstones. However, his brother Roberto Escobar denies all this, claiming that the gravestones came from c- cemetery owners whose clients had stopped paying for the site care, and that he had a relative who had a monuments business. Um, Escobar's son, who at the time was known as Juan Pablo, who's changed his name to Sebastian Maroquin, claims that his father's foray into crime began with the successful practice of selling counterfeit high school diplomas, usually counterfeiting those awarded by the the Latin American Autonomous University, which Mm. Escobar actually studied at for a short period, but left without obtaining a degree. So, Pablo soon came into commercial business robbery, which is his real step into petty crime. He would scope out potential targets, ride to their businesses, and then on his motorcycle, sip on a balaclava and rush the business with a knife or a gun in hand, demanding money, and would make his escape within 30 seconds. Um, after a few successful robberies, he recruits his, uh, his cousin, Gustavo, to join him in the robberies. So one one of them would ride the bike and the other one would rush into the business. You know, the t- typical robber, getaway mm. driver situation. Um, and then after a few months of that, Pablo becomes bored and uh, moves on to something much bigger, selling illegal cigarettes, fake lottery tickets, and participating in motor vehicle theft. So he established a contact with a Renault car dealer who would provide him with copies of keys to cars that he just sold and would give him the addresses for all the all the buyers so all Pablo had to do was just turn up to the addresses and drive the cars away Jesus so in his late teens he actually gets caught in the act of stealing one of these cars and he ends up se- serving several months in La Lettera uh, jail which was supposedly to quote him a positive life experience he learns all about the, the drug trade, drug drug trade, yeah. and, and kidnapping. Um, so Just, once he gets you know, back, a nice little tertiary yeah. education. I mean, literally, school of life, like a, a couple months, like a university of drug trade and, tra- and human trafficking. Yeah, and that's the messed up thing. Like, I feel like the fucked up thing about the prison system 
now and back then is you put these people in who are just kind of petty criminals and you put them in with hardened criminals mm. and they just learn mm. how to be better criminals. Yeah, exactly. When you have no actual like rehabilitation tactics. Yeah, there's no re- it's just this endless cycle of incarceration which is a whole other topic. Yeah. To continue. Whole other topic. That's a, that's a that's mm. like a whole four episodes just yeah. in oh, on itself. Maybe we should have an episode about that. So anyway, um, Pablo is released and he, is, he and his cousin go straight back to stealing cars. And what they would do is they would build up a collection of engine parts and bit by bit they would slowly sell them off. Uh, soon they got into building race cars. Pablo actually competed in a couple local events with, his, with the race cars they built. And with they made connections with other people in Medellin who were stealing cars and actually expanded his business what he started doing after that was he started selling protection, ensuring others that their cars would not get stolen. He was able to... Like goes back to the whole bike thing. Yeah, and this was uh, exactly right. He, he literally just creating situations for himself. Um, and he was, he was able to successfully do this because people were scared of him. He had a very violent and unpredictable reputation. If someone owed him money, he would hire a local thug to kidnap them and hold them ransom for whatever they owed him. And every now and then, despite, regardless of whether the ransom was paid off or not, he would kill them to establish fear in those who wronged him. Oof. So this just sort of, mm. you know, kind of yeah. cements the character of Pablo Escobar. He's not a nice guy. <clears throat> and I feel like so many TV shows and stories kind of like... Yeah, well, he had this um, he had this facade and this persona of uh, a Robin Hood. Yeah, well, it's kind of the same with Ted Bundy. Like, you have these weird movies and shows that almost kind of romanticize him as a character. Yeah, get, like get Zac Efron to kind of portray him. Yeah. You know. So I'm just doing that. So to continue, um, after a few times he does this he begins to actually specialize in kidnapping and alongside uh, his cousin gustavo and his future brother-in-law he kidnaps rich businessman diego um in Cavaria, uh who was a very disliked man amongst the poor workers of medellin he and others just like him were responsible for thousands hundreds of thousands of um poor workers in medellin being laid off um, and despite Diego's family agreeing to the ransom of $50,000, he was still beaten, strangled, and dumped in a ditch. Oof. So, and this is a, a major, murder is a major crime. But even after this, this made Pablo extremely popular amongst the common folk of Medellin. Well, yeah, because he's like wiping out... He's a, he's the, a Robin Hood. Yeah, the like Cruella de Vil character. This is, this is literally someone who's responsible for thousands of, of unemployment people yeah. receiving unemployment and this is something that Pablo Escobar's been through himself he's a man of the people he's he's the living embodiment of what they are yeah exactly <clears throat> so uh many viewed this murder as Pablo fighting for their social equality now we're moving on to 1971 Pablo Escobar is now 22 years of age Pablo uh, now started working for a man named Alvaro Prieto, a Medellin-based contraband dealer. So Pablo was responsible for a modest amount of drug trafficking under Alvaro, 
and before long decided he wanted to take more of the business for himself. So he took one of his stolen Renault fours to Ecuador and bought five kilos of Peruvian cocaine paste, successfully passes through several police and military checkpoints, returns back to Medellin and processes the cocaine. <clears throat> he contacts fellow criminals, the Ochoa brothers, to set up a deal to sell the cocaine to local cocaine chief Fabio Restrepo. Uh, the sale earns Pablo nearly $100,000, setting him on his path to become a high-end drug dealer. Oof. It's a lot of money. So, within For two a, months... What, like 22-year-old? Oh, yeah. 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 So, within two, within two months of, of this, Fabio... Uh, Fabio Retrepo, uh, the aforementioned chief of cocaine, is murdered, with Pablo taking his place as head of the Medellin cocaine operation. Now, it's highly suspected that Pablo was behind the murder, according to several people who were working in the trade at the time, but there was no concrete evidence to support this. Shortly after making his way to the top of the Medellin cocaine syndicate, 26-year-old Pablo Escobar marries 15-year-old Victoria Helena Vallejo. Now, I like that name. It's estimated that Pablo at this time had accumulated more than $3 million US. Jesus. 26 years of age. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. <clears throat> okay. So in the late 1970s, cocaine was just making its ways into the United States and was actually booming at the time. Um... The trade in Panama coming through Colombia was mostly being trafficked through Escobar's organization. So think about that for a second. That's mm. an entire. Well, he kind of became the gateway. Didn't he was he? literally the, ga- the, he, the gateway keeper. And he part uh, the the entire. I think the entire uh, cocaine trade through Mexico, the Mexican cartel, was through Colombian cocaine. Mm. Um, so just to give you a, a rough idea on Pablo's wealth. He purchases a fleet of airplanes to fly drugs into the United States for the overwhelming amount of willing buyers. Two months after his wedding, Pablo and four others are arrested while returning back from a drug run in Ecuador. They found 39 kilos of cocaine hidden in the spare tire of their trucks. Enough to put Pablo away for a very long time. And didn't he basically <clears throat> just say, like, how much money do you want? Here's what he did. He attempts to bribe the judge at first, which the judge flat out refuses. He Pablo then high, uh, gets his team to look into the judge's background and learns that he has a brother who's a lawyer. And the two, of, the two men, the two brothers, do not get along at all. Mm. So he hires the lawyer to represent Pablo. <laughs> yeah. What a dick move. So therefore the judge is forced to recuse himself due to conflict of interest. Oh, so then you can try and bribe the second judge. A new judge comes forward who is much more willing to take a, take a bribe <laughs> and allows him and his cohorts to completely walk free. Yeah. <clears throat> Fuck, that's so smart. Mm-hmm. With uh, an insane amount of money now pouring into Columbia, here's how fucking insane this is this is this blew my fucking mind so deposits within the country's four major banks in colombia were doubling between 1976 and 1980 the economy itself yeah so like people were probably like look we don't really want to fuck with this anyway because like money's looking good like the economy is strong scott morrison should take note (laughs) essentially he was responsible for bringing in a lot of u.s money 
into Colombia. Yeah. Which is insane. Also, to uh, <clears throat> to further on this, the cocaine money that he brings in from the US and, and Panama changed Medellin forever. There are there there were several discos and high end restaurants opening up all around the city just because of the drug trade. Wow. <clears throat> um, Pablo taking full advantage of his wealth, he buys all the cultivation cam- uh, farms and processing plants all throughout Peru, Bolivia, and Panama. So in every single country, Pablo was successful in buying buying off enforcement agencies. Uh, in in all country in all three countries, Peru, Bolivia, Panama, um, and he develops this ruthless policy which he calls plata o plomo, which literally just means silver or lead. Shit. Essentially saying, if you do not accept my bribe, you will end up dead. Yeah. You can choose silver or lead. <clears throat> so by the nineteen eighty. Pablo was now at the height of his power. He had every single law enforcement agency on his payroll. Jesus. While he wasn't the only cocaine impresario in Colombia, he was certainly the most successful. He owned multiple mansions, race cars, helicopters, and planes. The cocaine money just was insane. Mm. I think I read with inflation at the at his height he had over 80 billion dollars jesus i think i can't remember the exact figure but i believe it was around 80 billion he's like the he's the mo- he was the most wealthiest drug dealer of yeah. all time <clears throat> uh so with soccer as one of his just to give you another idea of his wealth with soccer as one of his biggest passions he paid to have fields leveled sodded and lights installed so he and his crew could play at night. He even got professional game callers to announce the matches as if they were in an actual FA <laughs> Cup final. That's fuck you money. Mm, mm-hmm. That's like if I like you're so rich you build a UFC ring and Joe Rogan's there to announce every single <laughs> fight that you're yeah. in. That's <laughs> fucking crazy. So 1979, Pablo builds a country estate on a 74. Hundred acre ranch. Nice. Let's repeat that. Seventy four hundred acre ranch. It's a lot of. That's a lot of acres. It's a lot of acres. Approximately eighty miles of Medellin. Mm. He calls it Hacienda Los Napolis. He brought exotic animals from all over the world to populate the farm and builds six swimming pools. And a huge mansion that could sleep up to a hundred guests. That's just in, like why do you need that many? Like why? It's one of those things like Jeff Bezos is like, what the yeah, fuck are you going to do with all this not? fucking money? Oh yeah, I don't know, like donate to charity or something. Mm. During this time, uh, Pablo decides it's time to start working on his public image. So he would constantly deny claims of his involvement in illicit activities. Um, and would often carry himself in, as a, in a humble and likable persona. He cultivated this image that he was a freedom fighter for the underprivileged, an alternative to the establishment, and poured millions into social construction programs. And th- this is mind-boggling. Between 1980 and 1982, Pablo Escobar did more to help the poor in Medellin than the entire Colombian government had ever done. Ever. It's one way to win the people over. 
one of the bi- most popular initiatives that um, Pablo Escobar brought, brought forward was a housing project called Barrio Pablo Escobar, where houses were built and given to families who had previously been sheltered in shacks at the city dump. So along with other projects, this made him the most popular citizen in mm. Medellin. Um, however, behind closed doors, Pablo was a soft-spoken and generally relaxed person to those around him. However, completely ruthless. Yeah. <coughs> He's also extremely self-indulgent with food, drinks, marijuana, and women. On one such occasion um, of his ruthlessness that I'll go into, uh, <coughs> an employee was found to be stealing from him. So he had this employee's hands and feet bound, kicked into into the swimming pool, and made everyone around him watch as the man drowned. Jesus. <coughs> okay. That's too much. Yeah. So now we get into the politicos uh, segment, I like to call it. With his popularity firmly established and his empire secured in the, in the drug trade, Pablo decides his next logical step is politics. As you do. Uh, in 1978, he was elected as a substitute city councillor in Medellin. By 1980, he gave his personal and financial support to the formation of a new political movement called the New Liberal Party. Two years later, 1982, he runs for and is elected to Congress, though only as a substitute who attends when the primary delegate from Medellin was unavailable. So this means he wasn't actually Yeah, present. he was like the stand-in. <clears throat> exactly. Uh, so part of being in Congress, which is, this is fucked up, part of being in Congress means that Pablo now has judicial immunity, meaning he could not be convicted for a crime under Colombian law. <laughs> the position afforded him a diplomatic visa, which he makes a lot of use of, let's just say that, regularly takes his families on trips around the United States. One trip, such trip, he purchases an $8 million mansion in Miami Beach, Florida. So now with his do? political standing cemented, his next acquisition was a personal army. A friend of the family was kidnapped by the M-19 guerrillas, who were uh, essentially this Marxist freedom fighter group in um, Colombia. Right. Uh, he creates a private militia, MAS, which um, I won't go into the actual uh, um, Spanish name for it, uh, but the the militia's name is just called Death to Kidnappers, essentially. Hmm. Uh, to hunt the rebels down uh, and kill them and and bring this woman, this uh, friend of the family back. <clears throat> so... The biggest issue with his now political office, he's now more widely exposed to the general public and politicians. Uh, so the public view him as a, as a general Robin Hood figure, but amongst the polite Colombian society, he is not welcome. They view him as what he was, a ruthless cocaine kingpin. Um, <clears throat> so his first, uh, his first chance at actually taking a seat at Congress, came in August 16th, 1983. Uh, however, he was at first refused entry for not wearing a tie. After quickly <laughs> getting a hold of one, he enters the packed chamber, slumps down in his seat, and begins nervously biting his fingernails. Immediately, the chamber president stood and demanded that all of his bodyguards be removed from the chamber. 
Pablo agrees. His thugs leave the room. But within minutes, Justice Minister Rodrigo Lara was on his feet, defending a claim of corruption that had been brought against him. Lara pointed the finger at Pablo, and he states... <coughs> Gosh, stop coughing. I'm sorry, I've got a really bad... I'm just going to... Wet that throat with a bit of with a bit of wine, with a bit of wine. <coughs> a with a bit of wine. Okay, Rodrigo Lara. Uh, to quote him, says, "We have a congressman who was born in a very poor area himself, very very poor, and afterwards, though astute business deals in bicycles and other things, appears with a gigantic fortune, with nine planes, three hangars at the Medellin airport." And creates the movement death of ki- death to kidnappers, while on the other hand, mounts charitable organizations with which he tries to bribe a needy and unprotected people. And there are investigations going on in the United States of which I cannot inform you here tonight in the House on the criminal conduct of Pablo Escobar. Pablo says nothing while in the House. He just leaves and is besieged by reporters. Breaking free, he storms off. Through his lawyer, he lets Lara know that if he does not, if he doesn't present evidence of his claims within 24 hours, he will face legal action. Lara willingly obliges, and in the next few days, newspapers are swarmed with all sorts of revelations about Pablo's criminal activity. So, if you think about the times, this is in 2020. No. Things aren't appearing on your smartphone. Yeah, you know, if if someone appears as a political figure in reality can be whoever the fuck he wants to be. Yeah. 1980. They can make up this backstory that they want. Like, for, for example, Clive Palmer, like even right now, Clive Palmer, a politician, as you know, is actually really just a really wealthy businessman yeah. who kind of bought his way into politics. And still miserably lost. And no one fucking knows that. Yeah. So th- this give you an idea of how little the public truly know yeah. him. This is the beginning of Pablo's decline. Okay. Um, so, Pablo was now persona non grata in political circles. So, if you don't know what p- persona non grata means... I don't. It's a foreign person who's entering or remaining in a particular country is prohibited by that country's government hmm, okay. within political circles. He is kicked out of the new Liberal Party and the US Embassy revoked his diplomatic visa. Even the Catholic Church renounced their support of him. Well, that's when you know you're fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pretty Catholic much. Catholic Church is like, mm, look. That was stand by Cardinal George, George Pell. Pell. We like him. He only like did some unspeakable acts yeah. to children. But Escobar. like drugs. Uh, uh, uh. Sorry, pal. Jesus. That's where we draw the line. Jesus didn't smoke in that Mary Jane. <laughs> <laughs> but he did fuck kids. Yeah. <laughs> from that joke in poor days. The government even seizes 85 of the exotic animals on Pablo's ranch, claiming that Oh, well, that they that's just a step too fucking far. Fucking petty, right? Fucking petty. Uh, Carol Baskin? Carol Baskin? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even worse for Pablo, the Colombian government, um, on Lara's behest, uh, were fast-tracking an extradition, extradition... Extradition... Sorry, I can't pronounce that word for some reason. I'm pronouncing... Things in Espanol pretty well, and then English you words. You just can't. I can't. Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. 
um, extradition treaty with the U.S. that would see him tried in America for selling cocaine in the U.S. Right. May 1984, Justice Minister Lara was shot seven times while riding in his chauffeur-driven limousine. Of course he was. This, uh, this was not the last of Pablo's enemies, however. U.S. President Ronald Reagan announces that he will be conducting a major crackdown on the cocaine trade. Yeah, because Reagan hated drugs. Yeah. Reagan was like... He sparked the war on drugs. Yeah. Reagan was the beginning of the war on drugs. Yeah. Um, so with the death of Lara, the Colombian government were completely willing and cooperating with the American authorities to go after the narco kingpins. Pablo was the biggest of them all. The murder of Lara also turned much of the Colombian population against Pablo. Um, so by the act, he had declared war on the state. For Pablo, this was too much, so he skips the country, taking a helicopter to Panama City. Uh, so yet, despite being previously offered asylum by the Panama president, Manuel Noriga, uh, the year before, Pablo and his affiliates were not welcomed by the authorities. So he, he spends a few weeks in exile. However, Pablo is desperate to go back home. He makes overtures to the Colombian government, drafting a proposal where he would, um, go, he would go straight, use his massive influence to rid Colombia of the drug trade, and provide, provided that he could retain his possessions in Medellin and he would be exempt from being arrested and extradited to the US. This offer is completely rejected by uh, Medellin and Colombian officials, when the Panamanian army raided one of the labs that uh, Escobar ran, he had situated on the Colombian border, he flee, flees Panama for Nicaragua. Meanwhile, he's hearing that his absence in Colombia was undermining his control of the Median cartel. The catalysts for um, the soon-to-come killing frenzy was the kidnapping of his 73-year-old father. Oh, that's not cool. Mm. You can't kidnap someone's dad. I mean, I mean they're drug lords, so they Pablo do whatever they want. But kills dozens of people, of suspected kidnappers um, until his father is finally released with no ransom being paid. Yeah, they're like, okay, just take him, take him, please. Fucking bad move. Uh, so in the midst of this carnage, um, Pablo returns back to Colombia. He's now determined to take on the state with everything he has. So around um, around Medellin. He he still bought off every official, so he's completely untouchable, and he can wander around Medellin freely. Uh, his ventral focus during the mid '80s was mostly centered around the judiciary um, system, especially judges who supported his extradition extradition treaty with the U.S. During this time, more than thirty judges were shot dead. Oof. In November 1985. The aforementioned guerrilla group M19, who previously kidnapped a friend of the family, is paid $1 million by Pablo to storm the Palace of Justice and hold the entire Supreme Court hostage. Jesus. So I don't know if you've heard about the Palace of Justice raid, but it's essentially Waco-level fucking No, I've crazy. never heard of it. Um, 11 of the 24 justices, along with 40 of the rebels, were killed. So... That's why I kind of relate it to Waco. It's 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 a fucking bloodbath and similar p- uh, premise. Just uh, you know, freedom fighters against yeah. 
rebels against um the law. Uh, so beginning of 1988, killings are being reported almost on a daily basis. Martial law is declared in order to prevent the state from toppling over. Um, on August 18th, the latest, the later year, 1989, Pablo's kill squads gunned down both the front-running presidential candidate Luis Galán and a state police chief. In the following four months, the Colombian government apprehended and sent more than 20 suspect drug traffickers to the United States to stand trial. A national unit um, for the police was stationed f- for the, in Medellin for the specific task of hunting down Pablo. And within the first, the, thir- the first month, 30 of the 200 men who were stationed there were murdered. God. It so really was a frenzy. It really was. It's, it's a fucking... It, it, it was referred to... The, the, specifically the... Um, the to go back to the um the, the powers of justice raid a lot of people refer to it as essentially a holocaust yeah which i mean i don't want to comment on that but that's to give you an idea of how fucking terrible and terrifying this this yeah these yeah. mass murders were um so Pablo is at this time successfully evading government and inflicting enormous amounts of casualties on on human beings. Um, but he never he never lived in freely. He was constantly on the run. Mm. Uh, to so to stay one step ahead of his pursuers, he was constantly getting tired of um, having to you know relocate. And eventually, he regressed in a negotiation. Pablo agrees to put an end to the violence and stop all criminal activity and ha- if he hands himself in. In exchange, he demands that he has prefer- preferential treatment in a prison of his choosing and reduced st- settlement. The government has already revoked he- the extradi- extradition treaty to the US with its 1991 constitution, so he didn't have to worry about being sent to America. Pablo is arrested and tried and begins his sentence at La Catarrel Prison in June 1991. Well, this wasn't just any old prison. He fucking built this prison. Oh, okay. It featured a football pitch, jacuzzi, <laughs> and a bar. Right. All of the prison guards were employees of Pablo. The prison cells were essentially hotel suites, and the food that Pablo and his inmate, fellow inmates ate were prepared by chefs that he brought in from restaurants he liked. <laughs> it's just the ultimate, like, ball and move. Yeah. He's like, all right, I'll be arrested, but I'll build the fucking prison. I'll stop killing people if I can live in the Four Seasons mm. for the rest of my life. Supposedly, um, he built it uh, in the area he grew up in and built a house for his family not too far down the road. So they could visit. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> So after a few months, uh, accounts begin to reach official channels that Pablo is continuing to continue the drug trade and his criminal activities come from La Catarral. This was a, vi- a complete violation of his agreement and moves were made to p- put forth to seize him and move him to a regular prison. Um, however, Pablo has connections uh, and he gets wind of the plan and escapes before the authorities could ever get to him. So now there's a manhunt for Pablo. U.S. and Colombian authorities join together and are also joined by a vigilante group known as Los Pepes, which stood for people persecuted by Pablo Escobar. Hmm. 
So the people are against Escobar at the stage. Everyone's against Pablo Escobar. <clears throat> um, Los Pepes carry out ruthless campaigns, killing as many as 300 people who were connected to Pablo and his organization. Jesus. Following his escape from La Catedra, Pablo was constantly on the run, moving his... Most of his um, closest associates associates, sorry, um, um, killed and his organization starts falling apart. He's spending nights sleeping in jungles and he's afraid to communicate with anyone over the radio and on his phones. So to bring this whole thing to a conclusion, December 2nd, 1993, which uh, incidentally I think was a day after his birthday. Cute. Members of the Colombian search block team in the barrio of Los, Los Olivos in Medellin uh, track him down via radio intercepts. The search block team smashed through a heavy steel door with a sledgehammer, whereupon six of them rushed the house. It was then they started shooting. In the house, Pablo was with his most loyal bodyguard, known as Limon. They both bolted from the front room, made their way up to the roof. The six search block members, along with others, Outside, poured a massive barrage of gunfire on their targets. Limon is hit several times in the back and topples down the ground and dies. Pablo goes down. He's struck several times in the leg and torso, but the fatal gunshot wound was penetrated into his skull. Um, upon... Upon... Um, Confirming his target, the leader of the operation speaks excitedly over the radio, saying, and I quote, Viva la Colombia, we have just killed Pablo Escobar. However, it's um, thought, because Pablo often told his family that if he was ever cornered, he would commit suicide by placing a bullet into his skull. Many people believe that he was shot several times by the block party, but he shot himself in the end. It's never but it makes sense. It's the ultimate, like, it's the ultimate power win. Escape from the Colombian authorities. Mm. And thus ends the life of uh, Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar has two children alive to this day. Um, one is a successful Colombian architect. Did he leave behind mm. like a fortune or was all his money oh, gone? Yeah. No, like, but was like, it was could his seemed. family keep it? Because it was so he had so much money, he had to bury it. Because he had he couldn't store it in banks or right. anywhere, so it's thought that a lot of his wealth was lost. Um, some finding it, some being, re, re, um, you know, received by the by the authorities. Yeah, obviously they seized all of his assets. Um, but to answer your question, his family didn't accumulate the wealth. Right. Okay. I'm just curious, yeah. like. So I guess that would be a big moral thing of being like, do I... Yeah, well, the, the most of his money was physical. He couldn't yeah. hold it in banks. It was, uh, he, had, he had so much money that 10% of his income was um, had to be discarded because it was being eaten by rats. Oh, God. Just goes to show you to you how, how much, much money, money he had. had. Yeah. 10% of his income. He was just like, oh, fuck it. There's a story that he burnt several million dollars worth of cash in a fire while he was hiding from the um, authorities to keep his daughter warm. Mm. Um, another thing he did for his daughter was his daughter wanted a um, 
a unicorn for a birthday. Oh, I've heard this story. So he got a horse and uh, he stapled a cone to its uh, head. Isn't that like one of those things where they don't know how truthful that is? Yeah, I mean, along with a lot of things within the Escobar circle, it's one of those, it's the 1980s, it's in Colombia, so I've got a foreign country. It's hard to, to you know, find credibility in a lot of the claims. Yeah. But it's not that much of a stretch where you're like, uh, maybe, maybe. It's like, yeah, that seemed about right. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was a story that I really didn't <coughs> know that much about. Yeah, and I implore everyone, if you want to learn more, um, there's a lot of documentaries about it. Um, if you want a, a very entertaining show with... Uh, a fantastic cast. Um, Narcos is a great show. Would definitely recommend it. Hmm. I personally couldn't get into it in a huge way, but I know you really liked it. And I know lots of people that really like it. It's just not really my yeah, that's fine. my thing. <coughs> well, I'm going to um, quickly pour myself a glass of wine. So if you just want to, I don't know, like scat over the sure. microphone while I pour my wine. Skibbity-bop-bop, bidity-bop-bop, Escobar wealth. Shibbity-bop-bop-bop. Oh, well, I mean, that's what I'm doing. I'm scouting all over the microphone. Well, okay. I will get the other bottle while you. I just accidentally polished thing. off the, the bottle that we had. I mean, you know, it does what it says in the title. We say it's the show where we drink wine and talk about crime. So, what sort of? We we talk about wine and drink crime. Is that what I said? Yeah. No, I guess. Oh. What sort of show would it be if we didn't drink wine? We want you guys to know that it's legit. It's no fake news here. We actually drink wine. Um, so, I'm actually talking about another lady today. Um, if you can call her that. I'm not sure if a serial killer really counts as a, a quote lady. Um, I'm going to be talking about Dorothea Puenta. Puente. Mm, she sounds like a lady. Dorothea Puente. Lady Dorothea. Um, she was the granny killer, a.k.a. the landlady from hell. Hot. Mm. Nice. Mm. That sounds like a Pornhub title. Sounds like the lady that lives above us. Granny killer. <laughs> landlady from hell. So, Dorothea was born January 1929 in California, who... Fun fact, just because I couldn't really find another place to slot this in that it made sense. Mm -hmm. Towards the end of her life, she lived a few blocks away from convicted serial killer Morris Solomon and they were caught within 24 months of each other. Wow. Yeah. Weird. Um, I couldn't really find a good part of the story to slot that in. So I was like, I'll just put it right at the front. At the start. We all all know we came to talk about killers. So it's not like it's like, oh, spoiler alert. She's a serial killer. She was caught. Um, and I also just had to cl- include this other weird little side note I found that, again, I couldn't find another spot to put it in. But her neighbours recall her fascination with acting and had said that she used to boast of non-existent starring roles in feature films as the, quote, evil woman. So, so she'd just, like, make up movies yeah. that she'd starred in. And her neighbours would be like, sure, Jan. <laughs> right. Um, so Dorothea, as many of our friends on this show, she had a pretty awful childhood. 
Her parents were both severe alcoholics. Her mother was a sex worker and her father um, attempted to commit suicide in front of her before oh. the age of eight. God, okay. Yep. So before the age of 10, her father passes from tuberculosis and her mother dies from a car accident and she shuttled off to an orphanage where she's sexually abused. Oh, okay. That's very So it's just shit. like, cool, great, fantastic. We're just setting Fuck. the stage for a really wholesome... This is a running. This is a a, an underlying theme in serial killers. So at age sixteen, she leaves the orphanage and earns money as a sex worker. When she meets Fred McFall in nineteen forty-five, so uh, she's married for the first time at age sixteen to soldier Fred, who's just returned from World War Two, and they have two daughters together between nineteen forty-six and nineteen forty-eight because. Freddie was back from the war. Mm-hmm. He was Randy. He was ready he to had go. Balls ready to pump. But Dorothea sends one of the children to live with relatives in Sacramento and s- puts one of them up for adoption. Oh, Jesus! Which possibly Christ. says a lot about her character. Fuck. She becomes pregnant again in 1948, but sadly suffers from a miscarriage. And then later that year, um, McFall leaves her, possibly because. He knew that she was a murdering psycho who yeah. put their children up for adoption. Crazy possibly. bitch. Uh, humiliated at being abandoned, Dorothy would lie about the marriage and claim that her husband had died of a heart attack within days of their union. Hmm. So Dorothy tries to make money in different ways. She's sentenced to a year in jail for forging checks. However, she's paroled after six months. And shortly after being released, she becomes pregnant again to a man she hardly knows. Gives birth and again puts the baby up for adoption. Yeah. Like, just keep it just in your don't pants. don't have babies. Just lock it down. Lock it down, Dorothea. I mean, have you ever heard of pulling out? In... <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if they knew what pulling out was yeah, in the 1940s. 40s. Yeah, they weren't pulling out. It's not what good Christians do. Yeah. So, in 1952, she marries Swede Axel Johansson and they have a turbulent... Well, Swede, Axel Johansson. That sounds like a racist name. Well, he's a Swede, and his name is Axel Axel Johansson. Okay, right. His name's not Swede. No, he's a Swede. He's from Sweden. Sorry, I thought like... He's from Sweden. I thought Swede was his first name. No, he's a Swede from Sweden. His name's Axel Johansson. (laughs) What fucking (laughs) Swedish person's naming the child Swede? (laughs) 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 He's... Like he's going to school, I was like, oh, this is our baby. He's called Swede he comes because to fucking we're Swede, from Swede. Sweden. It's like fuck. So that's we wanted harsh. no one to ever be confused about his Jesus. where he came from. So we named him Swede, like the vegetable. Man, intense. Go on, sorry to interrupt. So they have a turbulent and violent fourteen-year marriage. Mm. So in the sixties, again, nice. Dorothea is arrested. This time for owning and managing a brothel. And she's oh, sentenced well. to 90 days in jail. <laughs> However, upon her release, she's shortly released again for vagrancy, which I looked up because I didn't know what it meant. And it basically means like begging. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Intense. So it's like, you're broke. Too bad, bitch. Go to jail. Fuck. Um, and she's sentenced again for another 90 days. So following this short stint in jail, kind of in a weird way, like Pablo Escobar, when she comes out, her criminal career gets a bit more full on. Right. 
So she finds work as a nurse's aide caring for disabled and elderly people in private homes and for a short time managed boarding houses. In 1966, Dorothy divorces Johansson and marries Roberto Puente, which is where she gets her surname from. Okay. A man who is 19 years younger than her who lives in Mexico City. Fuck yeah. The marriage only lasts for two years and shortly after it ends, she takes over his three-story, 16-room care house, it was called, or a boarding house Okay. in F Street. In 76, she gets married again, this time to Pedro Montalvo, who, like her father, is a violent alcoholic and the marriage only lasts for a few months. There you go. Um, Dorothea would spend her time in local bars looking for older men who were receiving benefits from the government and she'd forge their signatures and steal their money. (laughs) She's she's caught and tried with 34 counts of treasury fraud but only given probation. Which is like begging... She's been in prison twice? Begging, you get 90 days in prison. Yeah. 34 counts of treasury fraud. They're like, we'll just say... How dare you make the country look bad? Just... Don't do it again, maybe. Fucking hell, man. It's just like the more stories of these I read, the more I'm like, the fucking justice system is... The judicial... There's no justice in the justice system. The judicial system. So, Dorothy's reputation at the boarding house she owns is mixed. So, some tenants complain that she's stingy, refuses to give them their mail or their money, while others praise her for her home-cooked meals and her kindness. So, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Okay. However, shortly after Dorothea begins renting out space in her home, the murders begin. So, Dorothea is known to neighbours as being a bit anal retentive when it comes to her lawn. And one neighbour told reporters that if you walked on it, she'd, quote, she'd cuss at them in a language that would make a sailor blush. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking hell. That is the most boomer thing I think I've heard in my life. Well, yeah. Make a sailor in a language that may make boomers blush. I'm picturing like a nice southern lady, like yeah. she cussed at them in a language that would make a sailor blush. Now you listen here, Tammy Lee. That's what I'm. God don't at. make no junk. Oh, I love that saying though. What God don't make? God no don't junk. make no junk. God don't make no junk. I actually do like that saying. It's a dumb okay. saying. Okay, so in 1982, Ruth Monroe begins living with Dorothea in the upstairs apartment of the boarding house, but shortly after, dies of a drug overdose of codeine and another word that started with A that I couldn't for the life of me pronounce. I did try, Can but I googled me? it, and it's basically like painkillers, like Tylenol. I didn't write it down. Oh, okay. I literally could not. It was like anesthetic. Oh, one of those. It's not an abbreviation. I wasn't going to it's embarrass like a, myself by trying yeah. to pronounce it, even though I just did. Fonosotoglutamate. But I looked it up. It's basically like, so it's she overdosed on two different types of painkillers, essentially. Yeah. Um, so Dorothea tells the police that the woman was very depressed and her husband was terminally ill, and so she committed suicide. And the police just go, yeah, cool, that sounds legit. Meh. <laughs> <laughs> sounds about right. Yeah, sure. meh. Weeks after this uh, death, one of the tenants, 74-year-old pensioner Malcolm McKenzie, complains to the police that Dorothy is drugging him and stealing from him. Police come and she's actually convicted of three charges of theft in 1982 and sentenced to five years in jail. Hmm. The big five years. Now, this part is kind of important. 
So while in jail, she begins corresponding with 77-year-old retiree Everson Gilmouth. He just sounds... Lovely. Lovely from that name. Gilmouth. And in 1985, when she's released, Everson is waiting for her with open arms in his red 1984 pickup truck. Nice. And they're soon planning a wedding. Lovely. So shortly after her release from prison, Dorothea hires uh, Ishmael Flores, and I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing these names incorrectly, Ishmael Flores to help install some wood paneling in her apartment. In exchange for his work, guess what she pays him? How much? No, 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 no. You need to guess what she pays him. I'm going to say 200 bucks. So she pays him $800 and a nice red 1984 pickup truck. Oh, In great shit. condition, which Dorothea says belongs to her boyfriend who lives in LA and no longer needs it. Don't mind the old man smell. Shortly after this job, And this whole next section kind of cracked me up because later on you find out that Ishmael is actually charged but released because there was never enough evidence. So whether or not he was genuinely just didn't know or if boy was just playing dumb. Shortly after this wood paneling job, Dorothy asked him to build a wooden box that is six foot by three foot by two foot. No. (laughs) AKA a box that no one will come out of alive. So she tells him it's to store books and other items, which you go, okay, that, sure. (laughs) She then asks Flores to help her transport the box, which has been filled and nailed shut to a storage depot. Red flag. Flores agrees. However, on the way to the storage depot, Dorothy's like, you know what? Fuck the storage depot. Just pull over here. Let's chuck it on the riverbank. Again, he agrees. She goes, it's just filled with junk. We'll just chuck it on the... It's fine. And you know God don't make no junk. We'll just throw it out. It's just tossed out. Just tossed out. It's fine. Just filled with junk. Don't even worry about it. It's a coffin. But don't even worry about it. I don't need these books. So, on January 1st, 1986, happy fucking New Year, fishermen spot the box on the riverbank and they call police and inside police find the terribly decomposed body of Everson Gilmouth. Oh, they don't actually, however, identify the body till three years later due to how decomposed that the body is. Oh, fuck. Yeah. So in that time frame, Dorothy continues to collect his pension, even writing letters to his family explaining that he hasn't been in contact because he's been, quote, quite ill. <laughs> just like it's like the most ill you can be I'm sorry I haven't been in contact <laughs> I've been, been quite ill rather ill <laughs> do not come to visit me I've I am been ill quite ill do know my red Ford pickup is in good condition <laughs> have you seen my 1980 red Ford pickup truck it's quite nice if you would like to send donations please send them <laughs> to this address so in 1986 uh, Puenta approaches a social worker called Peggy Nickerson with an offer of quality lodgings for elderly persons on fixed incomes. Mm. Referring to Puenta as, quote, the best the system had to offer, which just (laughs) is such a... No, but it's also such a sad commentary on what elderly and disabled people had. Like, you're a social worker, a strange woman comes up to you and says, I've got a boarding house. How about you just shuttle some of the old people into my home? And she's like, yeah, cool, that sounds good. (laughs) 
the best the system had to yeah. offer. Nickerson sends her 19 clients over the next two years. And this is an exact quote from the article I read. Growing concerned when some of them dropped out of sight. <laughs> Just like... I know they're old, but I haven't seen any of them for quite Growing some time. Growing concerned. Not like, <laughs> hey, like... I've I've given you 19 <laughs> clients and like 15 of them have disappeared off the face of the fucking yeah. planet. Like, growing concerned. Hey, what if it happened to the 15 people that I've sent to you? Dorothy's like, have you seen my new red Ford pickup truck? I don't know, but would you be able to help me dump some <laughs> books into the river? <laughs> I've got this coffin full of junk. I've got 15 crates six. worth of books in the trunk of my car. If you don't mind the mind smell. It's yeah, just six foot Don't you three. love that musty book smell? Yeah. <laughs> so she maintains her room and board business. How she's allowed to, I don't know. She takes in over 40 new tenants over the time spent of being released from jail and her eventual capture. I mean, by the way, she's been to jail four times. Yeah. Just casually. <laughs> They're like... Cool. She seems like the right fit to take care of our elderly and disabled. I like her. <laughs> She's reformed. Um, yeah, she mainly accepts elderly and disabled tenants and she's popular with local social workers because she's known for accepting tough cases, which is just the same thing as Ed Gein being a fucking babysitter. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no one thought. Just because they can doesn't, doesn't mean, mean they, they should. should. Um, so during this time, parole agents visit Dorothea at her boarding house, who had been ordered to stay away from the elderly and refrain from handling government checks. Fifteen checks are made, and nothing is ever noted as being a violation. So she's essentially just quietly killing old people yeah. and her boyfriend, taking their money. And suspicion is only first properly aroused when neighbours notice a local homeless alcoholic known as Chief digging in the basement and carting soil and rubbish away in a wheelbarrow. Dorothea has stated that she's adopted Chief and has basically made him her personal handyman. After noticing him carting shit from the basement, they also noticed that a garage that was in the backyard is torn down and there's a fresh concrete slab that's been installed. And Oof. shortly after, Chief disappears. Oh, fuck. In May That's... 1988, neighbours complained of a sickly sweet smell coming oh, from her yard, as well no. as lots of flies. Dorothea blames it on fish emulsion, the sewer backing up, and rats dying beneath her floorboards. So keep in mind, we're talking about a next-door neighbour house, and you can smell from like decomposing bodies. And where was this again? This is in the States, right? Yeah, in yeah. in the United States, yeah. So these are these are houses that are like decently spread apart. Well, the boarding house is a three story boarding house, so I would assume, and they had a garage in the backyard, so it's like not on top of each other. It's like suburbia, fucking, and hell. you can smell. And she's like, oh, it's just the rats dying beneath my yeah. floorboards. <laughs> I think it's to do with fish. And the sweet southern lady's like, well, doesn't seem to add up, but I don't want her to curse at me in a mm. language that would make a sailor blush. She said heck to me once, and... Dur this is how... So, during the summer, the smell would get so bad that residents would 
rather turn off their air cons and swelter in their homes rather than have them on and have the smell sucked into their houses. How many fucking bodies does she have? She tries to blot out the smell by dumping bags of lime and gallons of bleach into her yard as well as spraying home with lemon-scented air freshener. But, Mm. like, surprise, surprise. Doesn't fucking work. You can't just cover up decomposing bodies with a bit of Glade. And now whenever you smell lemon, you're like, ah, damn, I can't get rid of that corpse smell. (laughs) Damn. Don't you just associate the smell of lemons with corpses in the Mm. summer? Uh, So on November 7th, 1988, police come to the house regarding the disappearance of one of Peggy Nickerson's clients, Alberto Montoya, who was developmentally disabled with schizophrenia. Poor guy. Dorothea says, he's taken a trip to Mexico. (laughs) What the fuck? That's the one thing he's not supposed to do. (laughs) He's given to you for the one purpose of you not letting him leave. They're just like, he wanted some sun. He wanted to go to Mexico, so I I let him. I felt a schizophrenic should be by himself. In a city he is not familiar with. His name's Alberto. Like, yeah. he's going back to his home. He's going back home. He's from not <laughs> he's Mexico. He's a trip to Mexico. He's not from like, Mexico. And police are briefly satisfied with this. What? They don't come <laughs> back till like five days later. They're like the, the, the man with the schizophrenia who you are the now sole caretaker of. Has taken a trip to Mexico by himself, and they're satisfied with it. Yeah, they're like, "Cool, sounds right." Yeah, <laughs> you know what? He sounds Mexican, so <laughs> they're like, "God, yeah. don't make no joke." Okay, <laughs> okay, that's what I imagine the police actually yeah. did. Just let's wrap this shit up. Okay. We got bowling to go to. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, we don't fucking yeah. care. They don't. They fucking don't. Um. So police are briefly satisfied with this. However, they turn up five days later with shovels. Thank God. Okay. So after noticing disturbed soil on the property, police start digging where over the space of a couple of days, they uncover a total of seven bodies. The first being tenant Leona Carpenter, who was 78. Oh, Jesus. Two more bodies are discovered that day. And by the 14th, uh, there are a total of seven. Wow. (laughs) This part fucking cracks me up as well. Just goes to show how far police are willing to just, like, let a white woman. So, meanwhile, while they're digging, they've just dug up a body on this woman's property. She goes, do you mind if I just duck down to the hotel and grab a cup of coffee? And they go, sure. Yeah, nah. Sure thing, Dorothea. Can you grab me a flat white while you're down there? Like, what the She doesn't. Surprise, surprise, she doesn't go grab a cup of coffee. She flees to LA where she befriends another elderly pensioner. Oh. This time it's 59-year-old carpenter no. Charles Will Wilgoose. He's been quoted directly as saying that he was, I'm going to try and do a s American accent. He was nursing a mid-afternoon beer when an elegant stranger in a bright red overcoat sits next to me. It's our friend Dorothea. She introduces herself as... Donna Johansson, a grieving widow from Sacramento. Mm. She laments that the cab driver that bought her here has made off with her suitcases and her shoes are broken. So he actually takes her to a cobbler and pays to get her shoes fixed. Simp. Shortly after Dorothy starts talking about 
asking him how much his social security checks are, which he says at the time she seems nice, didn't seem nosy. I was like, okay, you do you, boo. Yeah. And then she starts saying what a good cook she is and what a good wife she is and that they should move in together. And he's <laughs> like, mm, maybe let's just pump the brakes on this. Yeah. He thankfully goes home alone and that evening turns on the news and sees her and her fucking death house and calls the police. And at 10.40 p.m., police surround the motel Dorothy is staying at and arrest her. So while all this is happening, police say that they're getting a large number of calls from relatives of people who've stayed at the house. So obviously it's a body's turned up. No one's been charged yet, but like the media knows it's a bit of a circus. Mm -hmm. So... As many as 25 former tenants have gone missing. And at the time, the seven bodies were unable to be identified. Fuck. With at least one body having been decapitated with the feet and hands removed to prevent oh identification. God. This body is later identified as Betty Palmer and her missing body parts have never been found. Whoa. So we actually, they still to this day don't know what um, happened to her head, feet and hands. They're just gone. Hell. So, Puenta was charged with a total of nine murders, her boyfriend, Everson Gilmouth, and eight tenants who lived at the boarding house. Ruth Monroe, Leona Carpenter, Alvaro Gonzalez Montoya, Dorothy Miller, Benjamin Fink, James Gallup, Vera, Vera Faye Martin, and Betty Palmer. It's alleged that she would use a cocktail of tranquilizers and sleeping pills that her psychi- psychiatrist had prescribed She'd knock out her tenants and then easily strangle them in their sleep and then hire convicts to dig the holes in her yard. What? So basically her thing was she'd intercept their mail. So they were all elderly or disabled people that were receiving checks oh, from and, and the government. Oh, and many of them were complaining about her stealing, stealing their, their, mail. their mail. So she would intercept their mail before they got it, take all the money, give oh, them shit. a little bit and keep the rest and say that it was for quote the board for Which, them staying just a side note is what most retirement homes are doing nowadays to poor pensioners probably. yeah not probably it's literally what they're doing so dorothea is finally tried five years later with over 135 witnesses testifying for prosecutor john o'mara the defense tried to call witnesses to show that Dorothea had a generous and caring side as well as mental health experts testified that her abusive upbringing and had motivated her to help the less fortunate, but at the same time they agreed that she had an evil side brought on by the stress of caring for her down-and-out oh, tenants. fuck off. Omara's closing argument focused on Dorothea's, pardon me, act of murder. This is a direct quote from the prosecutor, Omara. Does anyone become responsible for their conduct in this world? These people were human beings. They had a right to live. They did not have a lot of possessions, no houses, no cars, only their social security checks and their lives. She took it all. Death is the only appropriate penalty. Mm -hmm. The jury deliberated for over a month. How? And ended up... How? I know, because she's white. She's a white little old lady. And... They ended up uh, finding her guilty of only three murders. The jury was deadlocked 11 to 1 for conviction on all counts. The lone holdout finally agreed to a conviction of two first-degree murder counts, including special circumstances and one second-degree murder count. Go fuck yourself. Right. So police say that the crimes were definitely financially motivated with her income from tenants living at the properties to sometimes be about $5,000 a month, which 
converted works out to be roughly $43,000. That's fucking despicable. From like the And 60s. you look at that and you go, oh, she's old, she's white. Yeah. Mm. So, the and because like that? mainly they were like elderly or disabled people, like they didn't really like understand what was going on. What the fuck? So in 2011, Dorothy had died of natural causes at the age of 82 in jail. Good riddance. Witnesses say till the day of her death, she proclaimed her innocence, arguing everyone found in her yard had died of natural causes. <sighs> so, so the cops show up and they're like, uh, ma'am, we found seven bodies. And yeah. she was like, they were there when I got here. They're old. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I'm just Scone? an old woman. I'm motivated by the stress of ho- housing these people. It's so hard. So I kill them. Fucking ridiculous. Um, so before she died, I found an article where a journalist actually went to the jail uh, a few years before she died and interviewed her. Like, not so much necessarily about the murders because she just said that she's not guilty. She didn't do it, yeah. So he basically, like, talked about her life and I just was reading the article and I found some, like, interesting tidbits that I thought were, like, cool. Cool. So apparently she wakes up, she's beloved in the prison, by the way. Like, everyone loves her. They call her, like, Arnie Dot, Mrs. D. Like, they love her. She wakes up at 4 a.m. every morning, which is much earlier than the required time, and allegedly, like, keeps herself spotless. Like, when everyone else gets up, she makes their bed, she puts their washing away, so she's still, like, maintaining her boarding house even in prison. She sometimes likes to cook in her room and make t- tamales with tortillas, tortillas, sorry, canned chili cheese and other ingredients bought from the prison canteen with her measly $15 a month, which is gifted to her by an undisclosed charity. So, she's a fan of books of John Grisham and Dan Brown, and this part I found so ironic. Some of her favorite TV shows are CSI, Criminal Minds, and Cold Case. Yeah, of course. And the most random thing I found in this interview was that she likes to wear Victoria's Secret Love Spell perfume. Right. Yeah. Yeah, she seems like the kind of person who flicks a bean at the (laughs) criminal... I just found it like I wonder why she watches it. Like because she she's like I really like the criminals. It's so interesting to think that a serial killer would watch a well, TV show about. And Kemper serial was killers. a huge fan of crime shows, and he watched them to get ideas on how police yeah. operated. So yeah, but she's just basically like preying on the two most vulnerable groups of people in our yeah. society. And it's pretty messed up. I think it's a, a, a running theme with a lot of the people we cover in terms of white um, American serial killers is Please just the chances fuck. that they get. Police the, do not give a fuck. Uh, but with the the juries and the, the judges and, and, and the systems that are put forth to protect people from repeat offenders yeah. fail in every just, chance op- op- yeah. given. I could not believe the part where they're literally digging up bodies in her backyard. And they let her go. And she's like, hey, I'm just going to duck down the street and grab a coffee. And mm. they're like, cool, sounds legit. <laughs> Bring me back off. a cappuccino. She leaves the fucking area, flees with an alias, tries to do the same thing to another man. And the jury is still, one guy is still like... I don't think she did it. Yeah. 
But in saying that, even the the guy that interviewed her, one thing I found interesting was he commented on how she's not overly exuberant and friendly and she's not overly grumpy and mean. She just has this incredibly bland, passive personality that just comes across as so trusting because... Okay. It's basically just like this blank canvas that you can project your own emotions on because she's just like flatlining. Right. Which I found really interesting because he was like, she's so unassuming as a person. Like she doesn't stand out because she's so like, oh, hi, sweetie, here, have a yeah. lemon drop. And she doesn't stand out because she's not get off my fucking she lawn. She just doesn't stand out. She just doesn't. She just blends. And he was saying that's probably how she got away with all of this because people just trusted her and by she was born in 1929 so by the 80s she's a legitimate big grandma so people would see this like unassuming older woman well that's like um my favorite murder covered that the those two elderly women who were murdered who did a similar thing where they were taking homeless was it homeless men or yeah she they would sign them up for for life insurance for life insurance policies we should i'm i want to do that one one day yeah let's fucking do it that'd that'd be great but yeah that was uh that was my story for the week dorothea fucking heavy what a bitch crazy man wow i feel like i need to sleep after listening to that I know it's a bit full on, hey. Yeah, you know I mean, like we we went we went through the 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 drug the the cocaine, Medellin cartel, to granny murderer. Yeah, so but again, it's another interesting one where the person has this incredibly awful childhood, and it I guess brings into question mm. how much of that affects who they are as a person. Yeah, it, it's a running theme with. Um, specifically american serial killers mm. and it's something that's that's now uh a mainstream construct in profiling people like that yeah it's traumatic I childhood i think it's kind of why you don't get as many people who are regard like you don't see as many serial killers nowadays as one the system's kind of gotten to a point where it's harder for people to commit such crimes yeah. in succession, but you know, with, with the with where we are in terms of forensics technology and and profiling people, yeah, it's um, a lot harder for people to get away with this stuff. Yeah, and it seems like th- um, it's, it's it's extremely unfortunate, but it seems like it's graduated from serial killers to to shootings, to mass shootings. Yeah, now, which yeah, is that's the, very true. You know what I mean? Like like someone yeah. someone who has underlying mental health issues and and lives in a country where it's so, so easy to get readily nuts. available yeah. and it, it's kind of taken over the whole the the construct of a of a of a, of a serial killer you take That's you take someone like ed camper who has um yeah. you know mental health issues and and uh started killing people of a, of a certain degree of people like women who were going to universities at the university that his mother worked at was killing people at, 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 who went to those universities. Son of Sam killing specific women that he found attractive. Yeah. This is like something that's, that's been taken over. That's a very interesting thought. I still, I just, I still can't get over the whole, she just tried to play off that they, all these people buried in a backyard have died of natural causes. Yeah. 
Yeah, but lady, I mean, look, lady, look, they're still buried in your backyard. It's not much better than the fucking coroners of Australia. Yeah. Labeling most of the Aboriginal deaths in custody as natural, natural causes. causes. Yeah. Fuck you, pieces of shit. Anyway, we will get into that in this week's mini sode. Yeah. Um. I don't really have anything to sign off this week with. Yeah, it's I feel like we should try and end it on a semi-positive note. Yeah, I'm okay. Well, possible? I don't know, but it's like it's a it's a rough time to it, sort of. Yeah. I mean, I think if anything, to 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 not to prov- not. It, not to provide a positive spin, but if there's anything positive to come into this movement, it's I think for me personally, it, it's as a um, mostly white male, what this has provided and 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 shown to me is the fucking people around me are some of the most beautiful and supportive people that I have chosen to surround myself with that I could have ever found, yeah. and it makes me so fucking happy that when I go onto Facebook and I see all my friends list reposting stuff and sharing their opinions and speaking out for injustices that are happening in not just America but Australia with yeah. indigenous Australians, African American Americans it's it's fucking amazing to see and I have I feel so happy that every time I go onto Facebook and Instagram I'm seeing my friendship circle and people that I'm friends with that are taking a part of this movement yeah, we've got not good, just good, staying silent yeah. you know I think if, if, if there's anything positive to, to take from it it's that if you notice people around you being quiet or not saying anything about this movement or anything to do with it at all yeah, and, and in why. fact opposing it they're not the kind of people you want to be around yeah, exactly. and it's not just a matter of like opinion it's not a, a thing where you go well I just think differently it's not it, it's not like that. It's a matter of human rights. Yeah. You can't be on one side or the other. It's you either are yeah, a you're fucking either good on the human right being side or you of are. history or the wrong side. It, it's getting to the point where it is that black and white. You're either on you're on the right side of history. Yeah. And you're gonna look back in fifty years time and say that you it's, were a part of change or you're gonna look yeah. back and say, you know, you were one of the people who didn't do anything. It's not like even a left, right wing, yeah. left wing propaganda. It's literally. It's just basic human rights as people. It's human, it's, human yeah, beings. It's pretty straightforward, and it kind of blows my mind that people seem to be so confused about the topic. But anyway, we do what we can do, I guess. Yeah, and you know, like if you have people around you who are, if if you are not too familiar on the topic we implore you to to research more into look more into it and um reach out to those people around you who are speaking out about it and and are uh well informed about it and researching into and looking into it because you being quiet about it and not saying anything about it not to point the finger at you but like that's almost as bad as just not yeah as as being on the wrong side of it silence is violence it is and you you really should at the very least stand with your friends who are taking yeah. the time to to call to action to actually do something about it. Um yeah. but that but, being um, said, yeah. Thank you very much for tuning in this week. Yeah. Um, um 
This nice to have been re-recording again. Yeah. Keep an eye out this Wednesday, I guess, for, for our mini sode. But I'm sure we'll be sharing more information on our socials, which is where just best served cold podcast on everything but Twitter because Twitter freaks me out. Maybe Tama can do a Twitter. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah, no one really uses Twitter until you get like really, really big. Yeah, you know but I mean? we'll see. Maybe one day we'll yeah. we'll, we'll see Instagram and Facebook. Yeah, and while while you if you stuck around for this very lengthy outro, <laughs> um, if you have any thoughts and opinions or just comments at all, please share it on yeah. our Instagram. We've had some really lovely messages on Instagram that yeah. genuinely warm my heart. We love to hear from you. It makes me feel special, the listeners, um, and I like it. Y- you know, and I hope that's not asking too much, but I, I would really love to hear from you, the listener. Take the time, take five, five, ten minutes out of your day and just comment on something on our Instagram or just on our Facebook and message us. That'd be awesome. We would love that. We would absolutely love cool. that. Um, and it would, it would go a long way and it would really make our day if you would um, give us your thoughts. But on that note, uh, let's wrap this up because yeah. this is probably, I reckon this has been one of our longest episodes. To be it has. We've rambled a little bit. Yeah, we'll, we'll wrap it up now. So um, thank, thank you, you guys. For yeah, thank you so much. We love you all to bits. We'll see you next week and bye. bye.